the person who goes into finance, if they understand the political process better, will be a better person on Wall Street. They'll be more successful. I tell my engineering students, you have to know how to not just build a bridge. You got to know how to build a bridge in New Jersey. There is a dynamic here that people who say, well, that doesn't affect me, that we have to overcome. And therefore, we have to overcome a resistance to being politics is not a part of my life. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Dr. Ben Dworkin, who's the founding director of the Rowan Institute for Public Policy and Citizenship, and also teaches in the Rowan University Department of Political Science. Ben is also a political commentator specializing in New Jersey politics, and he previously spent 10 years as director of a similar institute for New Jersey politics at Ryder University. Before that, he worked in PR, state politics, democratic campaigns, and journalism. We had a good conversation. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Dr. Ben Dworkin of Rowan University. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Ben, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Ben Dworkin. I am the director of the Rowan University Institute for Public Policy and Citizenship, RIPAC, as we call it uh, for short. Uh, Rowan University is a major research institution, a state university located in Glassboro, New Jersey, which is about 30 minutes outside of Philadelphia, about 45 minutes northeast of Wilmington. I've been here three years. I founded this institute. Uh, previously, I had spent about 10 years at Ryder University, a small private liberal arts university in Lawrenceville, New Jersey, where I had a similar institute. My job is, uh, I see it kind of being an academic entrepreneur. I create what we've done here these centers on a campus. And our goal is really to inform, engage, and train students, faculty, and the public on all matters related to politics, public policy, and engaged citizenship. So that's what I do and, and who I am. I grew up in right outside New York City. I grew up in Northeast New Jersey, uh, public schools, Spent a gap year in Israel after high school and then went to Princeton undergrad, worked for a state legislator, and then went back to graduate school to get my master's at Rutgers, and then began a, a, a series of uh, careers. 
academia is my fifth one. So I worked in politics uh, for the state legislature. I went to work in New York City for a corporate PR firm. I started my own business, was in the uh, business of audiobooks, books on tape, books on CD. And that, uh, because of some family situations, ended up turning into more of a communications consulting, strategic consulting business. And then I decided I what I really wanted to do uh, was be in academia. You know, when I was an undergrad, I thought I was going to be a high school history teacher. I had majored in politics, but it was teaching that I uh, thought I would really enjoy. And so I found a way later in life to go back and get my PhD in politics from Rutgers University. I worked while I was uh, doing that. So I worked my way through school. And just as I was finishing up there, I got interviewed by Ryder University to run what was then known as the Institute for uh, New Jersey Politics. And they brought me on. And while I was there, I finished my dissertation. So I was at Ryder University, as I said, for about 10 years, and then was recruited away to move my family further uh, south in New Jersey, uh, further down the turnpike. And I went to work at Rowan University. And I've been here now for just uh, recently three years. (laughs) Sounds like a career that you're pretty happy with. I never would have guessed it. I never would have said that this is what I would want to do. I never could have predicted that this was the world I would end up in, but it has uh, been very fruitful. And despite my rather eclectic resume, it has become something that I am thoroughly enjoying. Absolutely. And feel it's what I, the work I do is really important. That eclectic resume I assume things like having been in the state legislature, having done PR, it's got to inform how you think about politics when you teach it right now. What did you learn in the state legislature that stayed with you? Every position that I have had in my working career has effectively taught me something. What I saw in working for the state legislature was that New Jersey is not nearly as corrupt as the cartoons would tell you. You know, there are bad actors, but most of the folks involved are committed. They play it tough. It's a rough and tumble game of New Jersey politics, but there are opportunities to make a huge difference. And I'll I'll tell you one story. I was working as a staffer. I'm, you know, my desk is a small burlap-walled cubicle in the basement of the state house. And sounds like a sack. <laughs> it, it was, you know, it was hard to pack things up, <laughs> you know, because it, it was the early days of HMOs. No one had really heard that phrase before. This is the mid nineties. And what we had seen is that women were going in to give birth and there was a 24 hour maximum amount of time that insurance companies and particularly HMOs would cover you for being in the hospital. And I'm in my mid twenties at this point. And what we were seeing, doctors were beginning to complain and saying, listen, women need more. We were hearing complaints from uh, constituents saying women need more time. Sometimes you're exhausted. You know, we were hearing stories about uh, young women who 
were being sent off before they had any enough sleep after going through a very long delivery and not having the rest after something like a C-section, which is major surgery, obviously. And their kids were getting sick. The moms were getting sick. And so I wrote a memo to my bosses and said, we should do something about this. And what we've found out from uh, health professionals is that you should have 48 hours of hospital care paid for by insurance, your insurance, when you have a traditional delivery, and you should have 96 hours in the uh, situation where you had a cesarean delivery. This was galvanized people on both sides of the aisle. You had the top leadership put their names on it. You had the HMOs and insurance companies fighting it, but in the end, it was going to be a losing battle for them because we were defending mothers and their newborns. Doctors were excited because it was the first time they got to push back against HMOs, who, again, were in their earliest stages of becoming a major force in the healthcare field. So New Jersey passes this law that says, here's an insurance requirement. And I'm feeling pretty good about myself at this point. Every time I have a friend who has a kid, hey, hey, have 48 hours on me. And what happened in New Jersey, because of our particular political geography, we have a lot of folks who live in New Jersey but work in New York or live in New Jersey and work in Philadelphia. Therefore, their insurance coverage, which was provided almost exclusively by their employer, wasn't covered by New Jersey insurance law. It was covered by ERISA, a federal law. So now we're talking, this is 94, 95, and New Jersey at that time was considered much more purple. In 1980, 84, and 88, New Jersey voted Republican in the presidential election. It wasn't until 92 when Bill Clinton won in New Jersey. So as Clinton is running for re-election, they didn't just come to New Jersey to raise money. They came to New Jersey to campaign. They had to make sure that New Jersey was still going to vote Democratic. Bill Clinton comes in, he's president, he's running for re-election, and he meets with top legislative uh, leaders. And one of the things I said to them as they were heading off to their meeting, it's like, don't forget that we need a national 48-hour law. And so, flash forward, Bill Clinton is at the Democratic National Convention in 1996 in Chicago, I was fortunate at that time, these are my partisan days, to be a delegate to that convention. And we're watching Bill Clinton give his acceptance speech, one of those long 75-minute Bill Clinton classic speeches where he just goes through everything. And Bill Clinton says, we're going to do this in the next term, we're going to do this, the bridge to the 21st century. And in the middle of it, he says, and we need a 48-hour law to protect mothers and their newborns. Now, again, I'm in my 20s. This idea came out of a memo that I wrote sitting in my Dilbert-style cubicle in the basement of the State House in New Jersey. And the President of the United States has just endorsed this idea. The ability for one person to make a difference uh, was so clear to me. Um, And that is really what politics, I believe, you know, can be. That's one of the things I am most proud of in my life. I think there's lots of ways to view that, including with that wonderful positivity, because it is a change for the better. But it's also like a lesson in 
in what the system is already like and the power of that insurance company to set policy to make it bad in the first place and how patient you have to be for change at the same time, right? Absolutely. I'm not trying to diminish your your accomplishment, which is wonderful, of course. No, look, I, it, it had happened once. That's the point. The point so it's not every day. I wish I had, uh, there are folks I'm sure who can cite a, a, a whole bunch of these, but that was one that was significant really changed the country. And you're, and, but you're right. You know, we had to see the range of forces. You know, one of the things we did um, as a strategy, it had to go through the committee process. And I was the staffer who was ushering it through, helping out the sponsors who would, you know, give some testimony. But you had to get through a very pro-doctor health committee and then a very pro-insurance insurance committee and before it got to the floor of the general assembly in new jersey and then moved over to the senate to be passed there so when we went in front of the doctors we made the numbers outrageously large you should have 127 hours after a c-section you should have 96 hours after um a traditional delivery and the committee loved it the doctors were testifying in favor of it then we took it over to the insurance committee, where the ins- the insurance lobbyists were freaking out, and the insurance companies were saying, "Oh my God, these numbers are crazy!" And everybody got to say, "Oh, we got it down to forty eight and ninety six, which is what we originally wanted in the first place." And they, everybody, got to claim victory on some level, and then we moved forward. So you recognize, yes, you have to learn, uh, you know, where the power is, where you know, where things get stopped. The ability to, to stop things is much easier. You got through this PhD in political science. I am all but dissertation in a similar program. What did you take away from all those years, bachelor's, master's, PhD, about the study of political science that you find really useful in understanding American politics? I think there's two aspects to that. One is the field itself is about counting and proving whatever it is you want to say. Political science, is, at least today, is, okay, prove it with numbers. Understanding that that is where the field is, uh, the field of political science, is illuminating. But there are other sort of old school uh, political science, uh, what political scientists call the soak and poke approach, uh, where you go talk to a lot of members of Congress and find out how they do what they do. Go talk to lobbyists and find out how they do what they do. So what I picked up over all these years, uh, one thing was just sort of the difference in academic approaches and how there are some things you can't count. That doesn't mean they don't happen. It just means it's hard to quantify in some way. And there are some things where anecdote will only get you so far and may well lead you astray unless you actually start counting things. The other thing that I would just say about the pursuit of political science is the understanding the differences between the system and the individual. You know, we talk about racism today and systemic racism. We talk about systemic uh, power being in the hands of those with more wealth and the wealth disparity being much greater than it has been uh, in recent decades. 
But it's not just the system. It's also the individual, the individual person who pushes, uh, who says something, decides to do something. This is part of the debate people are having today about Donald Trump. Uh, Was he a symptom? Was it a, a systematic reflection of where we are in our politics in this country? Or was he a single host unto himself, an individual uh, that another person could have come in under the current state of politics in America and not been Donald Trump. But Donald Trump did the things because he was Donald Trump. And there's a balance. I don't think it's one or the other. In understanding politics is about understanding the balance between those two. What did you write your dissertation on? <laughs> I wrote my dissertation on communications efforts in the uh, House of Representatives among the leadership. And what my idea was that over a 30-year period, 25, 30 years, the leaders of the House of Representatives moved from a system where Tip O'Neill basically had Chris Matthews as his press aide. And most members of Congress, they wrote press releases, but it was done by the chief of staff. They didn't have anybody particular. So you had the speaker with just one press secretary who redefined, uh, you know, where Chris Matthews really made his mark by redefining that role for House leadership. And then you move up a, a few decades and Nancy Pelosi has a press shop of 10, 12 people. So did anything come of this? You know, I wanted to know whose messages were being heard? Were members of the House leadership getting their messages out there? I counted a lot of articles in the New York Times and Washington Post and tried to look at under different circumstances when you're in the minority, when you have a, a majority, but it's small, a majority that's big, when the president is of your same party, all of these different circumstances. What happens? Do the folks who in leadership get their message out. And what I found was that no one cared. They had an internal sense of whether their messages were being heard or not, but no one spent any time trying to count. And yet they just kept investing more and more resources in this kind of personnel in these offices. Now we have to be uh, blogging. Now we have to be making sure we're in social media. Now we have to be talking to local press, not just national press. But it really made no difference whether they got more or less. They just simply invested more, and there was a a gut check about whether their messages were getting out. They're doing a lot uh, to try and get their message out. So when are they getting covered? Under what circumstances are they getting covered? To me, this was a fascinating topic. So that's what I spent, (laughs) in the end, 10 years uh, getting done. So now I can die and have these initials next to my name. <laughs> Congrats on those initials. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. I-, I liked how you characterized yourself as an academic entrepreneur, but I wasn't clear. Did you join the Institute at Ryder or did you f- help found that? I know you did with this, with the Rowan Institute. I didn't start it at Ryder University, but I built it. The Institute for New Jersey Politics at Ryder University was created by a professor there named David Rebovich, who was legendary in New Jersey political circles because he was really the first guy to make a a name for himself simply by giving color commentary and explaining New Jersey politics 
to the media uh, and the masses. So he passed away suddenly and tragically, far too young. And after a, a, about half a year of mourning, the university decided to find a new director for the Institute. I was brought in at that point. I had just finished up my coursework and my PhD program. I still had to do my comprehensive exams and write my dissertation. But at that point, the university writer uh, decided to bring me in and make me director. And what I found was that the Institute for New Jersey Politics existed in name only. It was Dave Rebovich and his cell phone. There really wasn't a list of students. There wasn't letterhead. <laughs> there was, it was just, it, there, they hadn't had enough events to really do anything. And so I spent those first two years at Ryder, where they were going to rename it the Rebovich Institute for New Jersey politics. I spent the first two years effectively building infrastructure, creating letterhead, creating a brand, uh, recruiting students figuring out how we're going to get them involved. What do they do? What do they get? Uh, doing programs so we could take pictures so then we could actually create a brochure. Um, all those kinds of things. So it was not started by me, but it was effectively built by me. What did you learn building that? I, I'm always interested in the stories of political entrepreneurship. I learned I can't do it all myself, that you need partners in your university and outside to do it, to really create something uh, that was strong. I learned that students, like uh, when I was a student in undergrad, need advice. They need a big brother to tell them how to do this. Uh, you say, well, listen, go get an internship. How? <laughs> they, they just they weren't sure what to do it. I under I began to learn how a political resume looks different than the resume uh, students will traditionally get at career services, uh, an office that is on, you know, all campuses. So when you start putting these things together, you can find ways to be creative. And I was given a tremendous amount of uh, free reign. And so I was really only limited by the hours in a day and my energy to build things. One of the things we created was a scholarship program because students who are, have the ability, the financial ability to take on unpaid internships in politics limit the future possibilities for those who can't afford to take an unpaid uh, internship in politics. So it's very frustrating when you see most members of Congress who want to help, are ready to give an internship to a number of students from their state, from their district, um, but they can't pay them. And therefore, only certain kids can go to afford to live in Washington for the summer because these internships lead one into careers in politics and then uh, the ability to run for office or to have an influence or be major players in political life you're effectively limiting it from the earliest stages of political involvement. So I went out and uh, created a scholarship program, and we raised tens of thousands of dollars to help uh, make it a little bit easier for these students, for any student, to be able to take on an unpaid internship. I learned about the importance of networking, something I had understood instinctively and sort of picked up, but now recognized um, was something that needed to be nurtured in a college setting. So we started bringing summer interns together for a conference 
so that people in, in, in August, not just Rowan's uh, or Ryder students would get to know each other, um, but they would meet the kids from Rutgers and the kids from Georgetown and the kids from other places all together. You know, we say, turn to your left, turn to your right. One of you is going to be in elected office in the next 15 years. Get to know each other now. And I took a lot of those ideas and added a few new ones here uh, when I came to Rowan University. In both cases, did you have support from the university in terms of funding, or did you have to do the bulk of it in, in fundraising? At Ryder, the, and I don't want to disparage Ryder. I had a, it was a good 10-year run uh, there. It was probably time for somebody new to put their mark on it. Funding was very limited. I mean, that is, they paid my salary and gave me an office and office equipment, but funding for the institute itself was quite limited there. At uh, Rowan, the funding is uh, more generous, but I still have to go out and, and fundraise for the scholarships. Uh, and right now, in our third year, this summer, we're expecting to give around uh, $12,000 away to a number of different students who are taking on these unpaid internships. The university has given me some money to do our programming and do our mailings and produce what we produce. Would the ultimate goal be to build this into something like the Woodrow Wilson School or the Kennedy School or, or one of those institutes of politics that is long and established and eminent? Yes, it, it would be wonderful to have those resources the Woodrow Wilson School actually just dropped Woodrow Wilson from its name. Oh, that's right. Um, yes. But yes, like the Kennedy School. Sure. Who who wouldn't want to have a variety of centers all under one uh, penumbra? The faculty. Yeah, all that stuff. Faculty. And, and you have so many resources and to bring in guest lecturers and to have visiting folks who want to learn something. I, yes. Uh, you know, at, at some point we want to do that. Right now, this is a startup. We envision ourselves being, you know, Apple computer, and but right now we're in the garage <laughs> putting it together. Maybe it's a good time to ask you a little bit about New Jersey politics, which, you know, I follow from pretty far away. What does the state look like? What does the battlefield between the parties look like in New Jersey? The political battlefield in New Jersey is uh, dictated by a couple key factors. The first, just voter registration. New Jersey's blue and getting bluer. Back in 2007, New Jersey registered Democrats outnumbered registered Republicans by under 300,000. That number today is over 1 million. This is a huge advantage to any Democrat running statewide. Um, and it's one of the reasons why our congressional delegation working off a gerrymandered map that was supposed to leave six Democratic seats and six Republican seats is actually 10 Democratic seats and only two Republican seats. The state of play is, is driven in part by that. We are one of two states, along with Virginia, uh, that has a major gubernatorial election uh, in an off year. And in New Jersey, the way the framers of our modern constitution, which came about in 1947, uh, the system was created so that the governor has tremendous power. In fact, I would argue that New Jersey's governor is the most powerful gubernatorial position in the entire country. 
And so the fight to be governor is this is the big enchilada. There's just a huge amount of power and patronage and financing and all these different things that come about from this election. So Phil Murphy, the incumbent, former ambassador to Germany, former Goldman Sachs executive, where he made a tremendous amount of money, former uh, finance chair for the Democratic National Committee under Barack Obama. He is the governor. And through the pandemic, as many governors have found, his popularity has gone up. Not everybody's happy with every decision, of course, but he is in a good position. Uh, He's not wildly unpopular. He's strongly popular. And so he heads in to this gubernatorial election where he's trying to be the first Democrat in a generation to actually win re-election to governor. Uh, We've had a a couple first one-term governors here. So he's heading in a very good position. He's generally favorable approval ratings. The state, we're moving forward with vaccinations, which means as you hit the fall campaign season, people are going to suddenly be able to go back to work. That will help an incumbent. And he has locked up the progressive forces in New Jersey who are loud and vocal and organized by signing a tremendous amount of progressive legislation. And he's cut enough deals with uh, party bosses, of which we have several uh, in this state, to make sure that he's not going to face a serious primary. Perhaps most importantly, Phil Murphy has resources. He has personal resources if he needs them. And in New Jersey, that's more significant than in a lot of other states. One of the defining characteristics of New Jersey is that it does not have its own network media market. The northern half of the state, about 50% of the land and 75% of the population, gets New York TV. And the southern half of the state, 50% of the land, 25% of the population, watches Philadelphia TV. So the average New Jerseyan will know more about what happened in Center City, Philadelphia, or on Fifth Avenue in New York than they will than what happened in Trenton. What it also means is that if you're running statewide, you've got to buy New York and Philadelphia TV to advertise. And New York is the number one most expensive media market in the country. Philadelphia is the number four. And so it takes millions of dollars to get your message out in a state like New Jersey. And Phil Murphy has that. You've talked about how blue the state is and getting bluer, but you're not very long out from a two-term Republican governor. How do you explain Chris Christie? We're more purple when it comes to gubernatorial elections then uh, we are blue in federal elections. So people here, even if they're registered Democrat, are willing to give the right kind of Republican a chance. The second thing is that it's expensive to live here. And so the Republican anti-tax message, like Chris Christie was able to deliver, can often resonate and cut across party lines. Third part, we become more Democratic since he was elected. You know, he was elected in 2009 when Republicans still had a bit of a chance in terms of voter registration. Over his eight years, New Jersey became more Democratic, in part because Chris Christie was so unpopular um, by the end of his eight years. Uh, and then it was followed up immediately by Donald Trump being the defining person for the Republican Party. And, you know, he might be very popular in uh, other Uh, very Republican states. But here, 
This is a guy who loses by 16 points uh, in the election. You know, it wasn't close. Chris Christie is, to explain him, is to understand New Jersey votes differently when it votes in state elections than it does in uh, presidential elections. In my mind, Trump stands in a different place than other Republicans in the threat that he posed to the system and to democracy itself. Through your eyes, which are, you know, director of a nonpartisan institute, how do you talk about Trump and his sort of similarity to Republicans and his differences? He is both a symptom as well as a host unto himself. When I've talked about it with students, both one-on-one and in classes or in lectures or talks that I've given, I try to explain we have a supply-side problem in politics. What we are delivering in terms of the American political experience for the average citizen is wholly unsatisfying to them. In part, this is just the way things work and the fact that they don't seem to work. You know, in 2016, we were trying to explain how can Trump keep bouncing back by insulting John McCain, and then he's still there, insulting a gold star family, the cons, and he's still there, the Hollywood Access video, the kind of language that he used, and he's still there. Why do people still stick with him? Why was he generating these crowds? In part, it was because he was something different. So like any product that is on the shelves, people were looking for something new. People were asking me, why aren't they holding him accountable for all of these terrible things, the misogyny and everything else? And I tried to explain, my analysis was it, was that nobody is held accountable, it seems, in politics. The banks aren't held accountable after the Great Recession. They just got their bailout. So why hold Donald Trump accountable for being coarse? Why hold him accountable for any of this? He's talking about jobs. He was playing on uh, the frustrations people had. What I try to convey to my students is that you have to get back to the fundamentals about how this works. Push away all of the rhetoric and get down to civic education. It means understanding both our legal foundations and our aspirational foundations in America. Our legal foundations are the Constitution and the principles by which, hey, each person has one vote. Each citizen matters. And the aspirational foundations uh, of the country are the Declaration of Independence and the Gettysburg Address, the two documents that effectively tell us what it means to be American and what we should be aspiring to be as Americans. So if you get down to that, then whether my student is a Republican conservative or a very progressive Democrat, they enter the field of battle, of political battle, of campaigning and argument and debate, but they enter with the same foundations so that you can lose an election and know that it's not the end. It is just the beginning of the next election cycle. So a lot of that answer had to do with the 2016 election. The 2020 election is different in that the incumbent lies about voter fraud and incites an insurrection to try and stop the orderly transition of power. 
is that going to complicate the civic education that you're putting forward? How do you deal with that? I don't know if it's going to complicate the civic education that we're looking to uh, promote. Do you have students that will be Trumpists? Yes, I do. And you you hear them, they're involved with Turning Point. We have gotten into this debate now a, a little bit in class. A student can't come into my class and say the earth is flat. I wouldn't allow a student to come into my class and say the election was stolen. The facts aren't there. You have to try and tell them you can be in this class, but we're arguing from a set of facts. You can get people on the same page and say, let's talk about where the future of the Republican Party is. And the Democrats can talk about the future of the Democrat. What kinds of forces are out there and how do you want to define it? And if you're going to teach politics and political history, I teach it from a perspective of these foundations and the structure, how the game is played with the idea that if you understand how the game is played, then you can go out and know what's wrong with the game. What will it take in order to make the game fairer and uh, better? I've always been really interested in how the game is played. And one of the things that I've learned in the last four or five years is that it can also be played with even less obedience to the rules. There's always been politicians that bent the truth or found ways to cheat in election, Nixon, Watergate, all these things. But something different happened of late. I'm wondering if we're fully coping with that difference by teaching about politics the way it used to be. What we've come to understand is that there's both a system and individual action that affect the outcome. The system can create a Donald Trump, but only Donald Trump can be Donald Trump. Mike Pence can be in there and have the same Trump policies, but... There's a big difference between a Pence for all his maybe way more conservative than Trump, but is not going to model himself after Orban or another person who moved to, to dominate the politics and form an authoritarian state somewhere, which seems to be where this president would have loved to go. No, I agree. Uh, and I think what that tells us, uh, two things. One, that our, that our democratic institutions uh, were not nearly as strong as we all thought they would be, that this wasn't dismissed out of hand, and that the power of an individual to cross lines, to g- violate norms, is available to somebody. I think there'll be an effort to try and legislate some of it and to try and rein in some kind of future person who wants to model themselves after Orban or Putin or any other autocrat. But, you know, I think we understand now there is a process and it counts on people not violating these norms. So now we need to legislate the norm and create it as a law, not just an expectation. It seems to me like an extraordinarily interesting time to study politics. When I've spoken to other teachers of politics, they've said interest is way up. Just to organize the Senate, the U.S. Senate right now, is not a minor task. 
does it feel to you like politics is more alive or is it just always been this way? Oh, no. I think that we've seen heightened interest in politics, especially in voting uh, among young people. It wasn't just Trump. Trump, I think, really mobilized people in terms of the electoral process. It just brought people who were more marginal uh, voters into the the electoral system. But in terms of caring about politics, what I've found from teaching over the last 15 years is that my students care about politics. They cared about outcomes. They didn't necessarily care about political parties. And therefore, people like Bernie Sanders back four years ago really galvanized young people um, because they saw somebody uh, who was going to break the mold of the traditional politician. You know, norms can apply not just to behavior as an elected official, but sort of what we expect. And too many politicians look the same, talk the same, have the same kind of routine. So I think there, there was a passion among the current generation, millennials, Generation Z, to get involved. They were, they were passionate about what was happening in their world. You know, these folks, A, understand that there are possibilities for people of color. They've seen Barack Obama, but they've also seen the Great Recession and their opportunity to do better than their parents be greatly diminished. They've seen older siblings and even parents come back from war in Iraq and Afghanistan and live because our field medicine has gotten so good that you can lose a leg and still live. So they've seen the struggle um, of families when you send people to war. They've seen all of this. And they've been tempered, to use a uh, John Kennedy word, tempered by this in a different way. So sure, they don't see democratic socialism advocated by Bernie Sanders and AOC as a negative thing. They see it as a possibility, uh, a realistic possibility. Teaching, there is a, a commitment to improving the world that is uh, there that I think is wonderful and that I try to encourage and I try to teach them how to best to do it. Where do you see your students going to for information about politics? I teach political campaigning every fall. And one of the things I, I assign the group into teams and they have assigned real people candidates who are running for some future office. One of the things they have to learn is how to do a poll. And a question that I insist they put in a poll of 18 to 24-year-olds is, where do you get your news? Because I need to know where I'm going to advertise. What consistently comes up, CNN and Fox News are the dominant places. And then it's social media. Most will understand you can't rely exclusively on one source. It's striking to me that they don't look at newspapers at this point. They don't look at papers of record like the New York Times and Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, their world in terms of information intake revolves around communicating with their own community of students and fellow students and family and cable news. MSNBC, for those who are fans of that, almost never makes the top five. 
that's where they're going now. What's a question that I should have asked or that you'd like to answer that I didn't? I think you can ask me why what I do is important. Why is it important? I think the need for centers, for institutes like RIPAC has never been greater. Politics is too important to be left to political science majors, and it's too important to just, as a citizen, to be left to somebody else. And it is through an internship, through seeing it, shadowing uh, a legislator, understanding the kinds of calls that come into an elected official's office, understanding how policy gets made in the state capitol or in Washington, D.C., this is the key to having success both in terms of your jobs, the person who goes into finance, if they understand the political process better, will be a better person on Wall Street. They'll be more successful. I tell my engineering students, you have to know how to not just build a bridge, you got to know how to build a bridge in New Jersey. There is a dynamic here that people who say, well, that doesn't affect me, that we have to overcome. And therefore, we have to overcome a resistance to being Politics is not a part of my life. No matter what you do, the lesson we preach to our students, no matter what you do, politics is going to interfere in your life. You can go into your family's dry cleaning business and someone is going to regulate those chemicals. You will have children and you're going to be concerned about schools and safety in a different way. Uh, God forbid you, uh, someone is fortunate to have a child, but a child with special needs. You are going to be very interested in what government does and doesn't do. All of these things are going to affect you, and therefore you need to understand how it works. A citizen needs to understand how politics Student success depends on understanding politics, and we make it accessible. The second part of this is that the success of representative democracy depends on civic education. And therefore, you have to rely on the places that supply civic education. One needs an institute or a center, a place that helps train you to be a citizen. You know, Harry Truman, upon leaving the White House, said, I'm finally getting a promotion. I'm paraphrasing here. Uh, But he says, I'm taking on the most esteemed a position in political life, and that's the role of citizen. We need to expect more uh, from our citizenry. You need places starting at a young age in high school, in elementary school, to teach civics. If anything, 2020 taught us we need to understand how democracy is supposed to work so that we can enter these debates with that foundational basis, both legal and aspirational. Well, I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. And I trust that these students are profiting from your guidance. So uh, thanks for that. Anything else you want to say? Everybody should come check out uh, Rowan University. (laughs) We have a good (laughs) program. You should come take my class. I want to thank you because I do appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. I think there are lessons for even the student who's not sure what they want to do. I have a a more varied career, and I think it has, I bring it all together in this kind of position. And to the degree we can find creative ways to inform, engage, and train, 
the next generation of political leaders in this country, that's when we're doing our job. Thank you for that. That was Ben Dworkin of Rowan University. You can find him at go.rowan.edu slash RIPAC, R-I-P-P-A-C-K, pronounced RIPAC. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.